Welcome to John Glenn College of Public Affairs Policy Brief, webcast series of informed conversations with policymakers and influencers and public sector professionals. My name is Trevor Brown. I'm Dean of the Glenn College and proud to be your host. And I'm joined today by Paulo De Maria, State Superintendent for Schools uh, in the Ohio Department of Education. Hey, Paulo, how you doing? Hey, it's great to be with you today, Trevor. So to start, I, w- I want to ask you a softball, um, one that I know everybody wants to know. Are kids going back to school in the fall? Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. It's going to be different. It's going to be challenging to, to get them there and, uh, and create a high quality educational experiences. But Ohio's education community is up to it. And uh, I'm excited to see how it plays out. Good, good. Well, I know we're going to talk about this and lots of other interesting questions throughout this conversation, but let's let's go back to pre-COVID. Um, you, you've been in this role for a little while and had enough time to sort of get the lay of the land, and you, you obviously know Ohio's education landscape from, from your previous roles as well. What were, what were your priorities and the, the Department of Education's priorities going into COVID? What were the things that were most important? One of the things I wanted to do when I started as state superintendent was try to pivot the department from being more in a reactive mode to policy changes and so forth and be more proactive. So we undertook a process to design a strategic plan for Ohio's education system. And we ended that process with a document called Each Child Our Future, which laid out a vision for what we wanted the education system to be. And um, it was really that that guided and drove so much of our work. And it was very forward thinking, very much focused on a number of key strategies, everything from the importance of improving equity uh, and and how we educate and provide services to our most most vulnerable, most challenged students, Um, clear through uh, thinking about, you know, redesigning the high school experience and trying to find better ways to make learning more engaging, more personalized, and and a a more enriching experience for students. So we had a number of those kinds of projects underway, exciting work that really uh, brought people together to talk about, um, again, it's always very motivational to talk about things that are designed to make the system better and and that push us maybe out out of our our comfort zone around what we're used to and into places where we think, oh, this could be so exciting. And then to have that suddenly kind of, um, you know, Called into called into question as you have to then pivot to address what we had to deal with. Well, let's let I want to. I'm intrigued by the first two you mentioned. Talk a little bit about equity. What were the equity issues that you were concerned about pre-COVID? Well, when you look at the data about student achievement, you know it really jumps out at you um, that you know, for instance, students with disabilities, uh, students in certain ethnic and racial minority groups, low-income students, their levels of achievement and performance are below their, um, you know, uh, alternative peers. Uh, so if you compare them even to the, into, to the entire universe of students, their performance levels are lower. And yet there are no cognitive issues involved there. Uh, and so the question is, what is it that stands in the way of us ensuring that every student Hence, hence the name of our document, Each Child, Our Future. How do we ensure that each child gets a high-quality education, achieves at the levels that we want them to achieve, that allow them to be successful after high school uh, and, and throughout their lives? Um, and, and, and what does it take? So what we do is, you know, I approach those as not issues of, you know, my personal challenge or of the department. We bring people together and we say, hey, look, let's look at the numbers. Let's understand what's happening out there. And how do we think about what the future could look like? And then the way 
ways to actually get there? What do we have to be doing differently to help more students achieve? That's the equity issue. And it's fundamental because when you look at those numbers, it's, it's, it's just sad. And, and yet there's so much promise in terms of what we could be doing. So what, were, what are some of the key pillars, those key strategies that you were thinking about to address those equity issues, say for children with disabilities? What, what were going to be sort of signature elements or things that were already in place? Well, you know, what's interesting is a lot of times um, there are issues of, um, uh, you know, of expectation, right? Are we in fact, uh, do we really believe that all those students can in fact learn? Because sometimes what happens is implicit bias, you know, intrudes and, and, on a subconscious level, uh, people think, well, here's a student who has a disability. Maybe I need to be protective of them and not push them so hard. Or uh, maybe, you know, they're not capable or it would cause them more uh, um, distress if, if I tried to, you know, get them to do X. We have to, we have to find ways to uh, push against those and understand those implicit biases and, and dismantle them. Because by and large, what we find is those students do, in fact, uh, can achieve at those those higher levels. And part of it is once we break through uh, and, and have those higher expectations and believe in what they can accomplish, it drives a whole set of, of actions and activities. The other key is to make sure everybody's working together, that people see the education of a student as a, as a, as a shared responsibility. It's not just, you know, um, this teacher has this role and the intervention specialist has a different role and, and the principal, you know, might be tuned in or not so much tuned in or paying attention to other things. How do we make sure there's shared responsibility, uh, collective undertaking, um, and yet that the needs of that individual child are understood. So, so, the, so the services are very personalized in the interest of helping that student meet their um, highest potential. So let's go to the second one. You said high school redesign. Um, you know, I hear that and that suggests some physical redesign, but I'm imagining it's, it's more curricular design. Right. Elaborate a little bit on what the, what the goals were there. Well, you know, one of the things I like to do best is visit schools. And, you know, it doesn't take too long to talk to high school students to find that a lot of times um, they're bored. They get that they have to take so many courses to do things, but they don't always see the relevancy. Um, they sometimes struggle not being able to, you know, find their aspiration and their passion and really be engaged in what's happening. And a lot of times, you know, their own voice or their, their interest and, and, and opinions about what the education experience should look like aren't always elevated. Don't get me wrong, there are a lot of places that do a great job of amplifying student voice, listening to their students, but you know, by and large, there we saw a pattern of these kinds of experiences and said to ourselves, you know, what could that high school experience look like uh, that would make it for more engaging for students? That they could, in fact, pursue their own uh, passions and aspirations, that they could um, see the relevancy of the work they were doing, maybe combining subject areas and, and structuring it more around project-based learning experiences, or um, even getting more students out into the real world, into workforce uh, positions, into internships, um, so, that, so that, again, they can see how math is applied or how social studies is applied um, in, in, in the real world. And that then sparks their vision about what their future might be. What, what do they really want to do um, as they continue to mature and grow and, and reach higher and higher levels of education? So now COVID hits. It's early March. Do you get to make the call? We're shutting schools down. Was that Paulo De, De Maria's decision? No, no, it was not. It was not. Take uh, us 
Take us through how that happens. Sure, sure. I really tip my hat to the governor. Uh, you know, I've known Governor DeWine for a long time. And what I admire about him is he, he really dives in deeply to issues. And another one of his trademarks is that he brings people together. He, he, he re- recognizes his own, you know, strengths and weaknesses. And he also values other people's expertise. So as this thing started to surface, you know, he surrounded himself with healthcare professionals, people that really understood what, you know, what a pandemic was all about, um, what needed to happen in order to, to fight against it, and, you know, what strategies were at play, and relied a lot, very heavily on the Department of Health to sort of quarterback all the all the health-related um, research and issues and identifying practices. So, uh, you know, quickly, the goal became, if you remember, the very first thing that happened was that the Arnold Classic, a major event that brought a lot of people together, was scheduled to take place in Columbus. And, and, and the fundamental principle about, pand- you know, countering pandemics is don't let people come together. So, so that, you know, canceling the Arnold was sort of the first thing, or making it just, you know, no spectators um, was the first thing. And then they started looking around for all other places where many people came together and schools was on that list. And so fairly shortly into uh, the governor's plan for addressing the pandemic, um, school buildings were ordered closed. Now, it was it was very clear that that didn't mean learning had to stop. And in fact, um, the, you know, in his uh, in his press conference, he said he wanted uh, districts and schools to continue to provide educational opportunities to students. Uh, you know, we ended up talking about in terms of making a good faith effort, because with 600 plus school districts in the state, a lot of different circumstances, a lot of different readiness levels for pivoting so dramatically like that. Um, but he wanted to make sure it happened. But the decision was, you know, the governor's working primarily and informed by his health advisors and the Department of Health. We, we were, certainly we were consulted, um, but you know, you, you could tell that there was a deep understanding and this had to be a part of the response. I'm at an educational institution and, and we, we all got caught flat-footed. Um, you know, how, how do you predict the, the pandemic? How right. well prepared do you think K through 12 schools were in the state of Ohio for this just tremendous shift in that March period to, to vacate their schools and then begin delivering um, education virtually? And, and what were the steps that, that you, what role did the state um, Department of Education play in helping those schools navigate that transition? In terms of preparedness, what's interesting is Ohio has a pretty strong set of emergency preparedness laws on the books for schools. Um, and so if you actually go to the website Safer Schools Ohio and look at what, you know, what are the different sections of a good emergency management plan for a school, you'll see that it's suggested there's one chapter that's supposed to be about, uh, you know, pandemics and, 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 and disease outbreaks, communicable disease outbreaks. Uh, but no, nobody really contemplated what we were going into. So one of the things we said is, well, go back and look at what you wrote, uh, because, uh, you know, fortunately, people would have had to have been in contact with their local health departments, with their emergency management agencies in order to develop not only the totality of those plans, but also the sections dealing with uh, communicable diseases. But that said, even even the best of those plans didn't, you know, didn't even imagine what we were in for. And so, um, you know, 
while while the guidelines around those things were helpful to uh, inform the the plans that were going to be developed just in time, uh, there was really not a high level of readiness. If anything, what people thought was well, if a if a school building had to close because of a flu outbreak and you had some you know teachers you know too many teachers couldn't be there or too many students were going to be out you know you, how you would close down and sanitize and reopen in a couple of days that was really the extent of the kind of planning. So you you found the entire system having to begin to pivot and and really think deeply about doing things differently. How do we continue to deliver educational services uh, to students in any number of different circumstances? The role that we played was actually more sort of a a broker of information and and just clarifying. We, you know, on day one, we started getting hundreds of questions. Well, what do I do about this? What do I do about that? And we systematically organized those. We had a little sort of crisis response team and we would, you know, sort through the different questions, develop the answers. And then, you know, in fairly short order, we published the first kind of frequently asked questions document with, um, uh, you know, had, I think, like 25 or 30 questions on it and the answers to those. And by the time, you know, we were done, we had issued something like 30 different documents, each of which had information about a particular category. We we reissued the one about child nutrition services um, probably about six different times because um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture keep, kept issuing waivers that gave us more flexibility. So, you know, in one document, we would say, well, you can do this, but you really can't do that. And then later we'd say, no, no, now you can do that. And by the way, you can also do this. And so you had all that, all that change through flexibility coming from the federal government. We also had documents about special education. We had documents about how to, how to improve the recognition of child abuse and neglect when students aren't in school. Uh, so the, the whole gamut, all kind of conveniently located on a single webpage on our, um, on our department's website. So the triage process ensued as you identified what are the key things that need to be addressed in in short order. But let's go back to those priorities you you mentioned earlier, the equity issues, the high school redesign. How has COVID impacted those priorities? Has that reshuffled the priorities for you or just sort of altered the way you're approaching them? Yeah, I I don't think it's reshuffled the priorities. What, what What it's done is it's a huge sort of, you know, if you'll pardon the expression, a time suck. All of a sudden, our attention and our work and and the you know and the eight hours in the day, which became ten hours, which became twelve hours, were all focused on answering the immediate questions, um, and and having to sort of set aside the more future-oriented, strategic thinking. Uh, again, kind of reverse pivoting what I had tried to do before. I was trying to go from a reactive mode to a proactive mode. Now I find myself having to shift back to reactive in order to address, you know, a very real crisis, a very real challenge. And so you still knew, and there were times when, when the, you know, priorities that we had would creep into our thinking and say, okay, well, you know, what does this mean? How can we think about high school redesign in the context of a really significant shift in experience? And how did high school students react to that shift in experience? And how could what we learn inform future work on high school redesign? All the while, simply trying to help students and schools understand this is what is going to happen right now, and this is how you need to address it within the context of state laws and regulations and federal laws and regulations. Let's let's since we spent a little bit of time talking about those two equity and high school redesign, I'm curious to sort of plow a little deeper and hear more about your thinking. So on equity, um, what what were the what are the particular challenges on the equity front that COVID poses, and and how is the state 
thinking about how to address those, not just immediately now, school's essentially out, but moving forward, knowing that we'll be in some kind of new situation in the fall. Right, right. So, so one of the issues that came out of COVID was the shift to remote learning. A lot of people's vision for remote learning was um, online instruction, right, or, or online functionality. But what we found was um, that there, while while we're in far better shape than you know people were in the pandemic of 1918, right? Um, there were still people that did not have either access to connectivity or the uh, you know the equipment, uh, the technology to to engage, and 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 there were really two aspects to that. One was you had locations like urban areas where in fact connectivity was available. You have lots of providers, um, but because of a, a, a student's income status or their home status or what have you, they didn't have access. Um, the other aspect was in some parts of the state we still don't have access to broadband connectivity, and we have even spotty cell service. And so um, a bill, you know, even if somebody with means wanted to say, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I want to subscribe to internet service. Uh, they couldn't because there was no, you know, provider that, that served their home. So, um, so, so that amplified kind of the inequity because all of a sudden, it, even a, a, a good faith effort on the part of a district trying to say, we're, you know, we're going to deliver to all our students would run into the obstacle of, wait a minute, here's some students that didn't have access and, and couldn't afford themselves of that particular opportunity that was being um, offered. And, you know, and, and then how do you address that? How do you rectify that? Fortunately, in, in the, in, in the first scenario, uh, districts were buying hotspots. They were deploying buses that had um, hotspots on them. Uh, they, they turned on, you know, uh, connectivity in their parking lots so that if people could make their way to a school building, they could use the internet uh, from there. They were buying Chromebooks and making sure, you know, and other uh, uh, devices and making those available. Uh, you know, it was it was more challenging in the places that simply did not have uh, the kind of connectivity, and they had to resort to all other means of, 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 of you know promoting remote learning. Is that, uh, is that a viable long term strategy? That sort of um, you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do whatever you can, find the resources where where you can get them. I mean, is this is this viable? If, if you know, I, I've I've heard many many more people talk about that in this day and age. You know, we ought to find a way. You know, similar to how things happen in terms of access to electricity, access to, you know, um, uh, telephone service, basic telephone service or 911 telephone service, sort of universal access. Could we guarantee that every school age child in the state of Ohio would have, you know, internet access uh, that's, you know, appropriate for their use at their at their place of residence? What would that take? Because, we, you know, again, many, 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 a high percentage did in fact have that. In some places it was kind of surprising where you might have thought it'd be less, but, uh, there, you know, it was there. Um, uh, and so it's really that marginal gap. How do we fill that? Uh, and, and what might be the way to do it? Obviously, if it's the accessibility in places where, where the, where the, you know, broadband exists, that's one thing. The, the more expensive proposition is trying to, you know, incentivize companies to serve more remote areas where the, you know, the business, you know, sense of it doesn't, doesn't hold up. So how, do, how does that look? But, but again, I think, I think the state and public policy can clearly play a role in uh, in addressing some of those issues. So I think in the long term, especially if we see that there's real power uh, uh, in technology-informed practice as part of the total education experience, you know, how do we how do we make that choice? Um, so we were just talking about testing, um, and I was asking you, and, and you rightly pointed out, I appreciated what you said about um, using specificity around that word. 
testing. Um, and, and you were describing how you had to make some, uh, again, triage decisions around testing for this, this spring. And then looking forward to the future, there's not enough information to be able to, to predict what, what's going to happen. But the right. follow-up question I, I had was, you know, we're talking very thoughtfully about equity. Um, you know, are you expecting equity impacts around testing in the results this spring? Um, and, and do you anticipate there are some correctives or ways that we can address those likely imbalances that will, will be apparent both at the individual level and at the school level? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think so. But but what I don't, what I try to caution people about is don't think that there's some magic solution to accelerating folks. Um, my, my goal is to continue to focus on the fundamental ability of the education system to develop a high quality education to each and every child. Uh, because I think that's the only way you get at the equity issue. And, and this is, from, you know, Trevor, you know that I, I spent some time in the higher education system. And one of the takeaways from that is that, you know, we have this huge infrastructure that provides remediation. When a student comes in and they take a test and, well, gee, you're not quite ready for college level work. But the data shows that you put a student in remedial courses, the likelihood of them actually advancing to complete a degree is like less than 5%. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the, 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 the strong thinkers in higher education have said to themselves, you know what we should do is go ahead and put the student in the higher ed course and then provide them extra supports when you encounter like maybe their math isn't at the skill level to succeed in college level biology. Let's provide them with the math support that's relevant to that biology class to help them succeed. So, so I think that's what we need to continue to do is not necessarily try to figure out what did this child miss and, 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 and try to repair that, but rather uh, figure out where they are and go ahead and continue to move them forward, uh, knowing that we may along the way need to address their particular learning need of a, of a, of a particular you know, subject matter or, or something that will, you know, th- th- that will help fill in a gap. But we shouldn't try to you know, take a step back and say, well, let's spend the first six weeks doing remediation and then pick up from there, because I think you know, that just does, there's not a lot of proof that that actually works. So okay, let's let's return to the conversation that we started with, which is how are we going back to school in the fall? What yeah, what's, so you know it's gonna be a challenge. What's the process that you anticipate the state and individual school districts going through? And how much variability do you anticipate across the state in, in what schooling looks like in yeah. the fall? So the process, right now we're in the middle of it because again, you know. Schools and districts want to know sooner rather than later. They're making decisions about hiring, purchasing necessary supplies and equipment, getting schools ready, even bus routes, scheduling high school students. Those kinds of things are are all things that happen in the spring. And so we've assembled a group of, uh, you know, sort of a sampling. There's superintendents, principals, and others involved in the process. All the major associations are involved in the work as well. And we're working on putting out a planning guide, um, which, which represents a number of things. On the one hand, for all the health considerations, all the health and safety precautions that are going to have to be adhered to, we're relying on the Department of Health to play that role, working, you know, with the, the, their best advisors and experts and informed by, you know, educators as part of that collaborative process. But ultimately, the health and safety specifications will come from the Department of Health. We then, in our planning guide, will overlay that with a set of the elements of 
instruction and the education experience that schools and districts have to think through. So we're not prescribing. It's not going to be some sort of one size fits all. The state told us we needed to do school like this, but it's going to be up to local decision makers to, you know, engage with, you know, administrators and teachers and staff and parents and students and the community about, okay, given the health and safety parameters, what should the structure of our educational experience be in our community? Um, and so then our role becomes, on the one hand, creating the, 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 the guide that helps that thought and planning process happen locally, but then also providing additional supplemental resources. Again, here's what you need to be thinking about in terms of students with disabilities. Here are the considerations that need to be special for students who are English learners or homeless students. Um, you know, here's some things to keep in mind as you're uh, thinking about, you know, maintaining school facilities or, uh, or what have you. So, so again, we will once again provide information, answers to questions, um, and, and broker conversations, network people together to say, hey, look, we're all dealing with similar challenges. How are you approaching it? What, what uh, instructional approach are you thinking about using? How are you um, you know, addressing the needs of your students. What can we learn from each other? Because we saw a lot of that during the pandemic. Lots of, you know, superintendents getting together that had not talked to each other before, just, you know, sharing their challenges, sharing their successes, what was working. We saw teachers doing a lot of that. Teachers, you know, picking up new tools and saying, well, I'm going to try this or I'm going to try that. Hey, my kids really responded to this approach. It really worked well. You know, that's learning. That's shareable. Um, that begins to shed light on best practice and it moves the system forward. So I think we're going to enable those kind of conversations, answer questions, learn as we begin to reopen and share the experiences that people are having. To your point about variability, yeah, it's going to be very variable because there's a lot of variability in, in circumstance, situation, um, and, you know, any number of elements. And uh, um, But that's okay as long as what we see is people collaborating, bringing their best to the table in terms of creating educational experience of quality uh, for all our students. But, you know, the one thing I have to add to this, unfortunately, is to overlay the fiscal challenges. As you know, as you know, with the, with the, the you know, essential shutdown of many aspects of the state's economy uh, um, over the over the last several months, the state's financial posture has just taken a beating. And uh, we already saw some funding cuts in fiscal year 2000, uh, uh, 2020, which is ending here on June 30. Uh, and there's likely more to come because the, you know, the projections are uh, it's going to be pretty bleak in terms of state revenues for fiscal year 2021. So, so we're, we're stuck in this you know, challenging space where, in fact, it would be good to have more money uh, to to, to take care of some of these issues, whether it's buying uh, protective equipment or, um, you know, uh, scheduling more time or providing supplemental uh, resources or what have you. Uh, and yet we're going to have a, a, a resource, you know, constraint on our hands. So pull out your crystal ball and uh, it's the year 2023, 2024. What, what do you predict K-12 education looks like in Ohio then? I think there will be some uh, key differences. I, I, I don't think you go through an experience like this and 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 see, you know, almost experience sort of fundamentally different approaches to learning without that having a systemic kind of impact. Um, uh, so, in fact, I've already been in conversations, uh, and I tip my hat to uh, Eric Gordon up in Cleveland, who's talking about more, you know, competency-based, mastery-based models, um, maybe even more year-round schools. Cleveland already has, I think, like eight uh, year-round schools. Um, but, it, you know, it's a model that we've heard more people talk about uh, because they see that 
it as, as allowing greater flexibility. Um, and in fact, in some ways, greater personalization. I think you'll see a push towards greater personalization. Some of the things that surfaced in our conversations about high school redesign and letting students be more self-directed in their learning, letting them leverage more learning opportunities rather than sort of sitting in a class you know, don't get me wrong, a classroom experience can be exciting and vibrant and engaging and, and uh, very satisfying from a learning perspective, but so can, you know, guiding your own project or doing a, uh, you know, a project-based approach to some issue that's really um, dear and near to your heart or that you're passionate about. So I, so I think you'll see elements of personalization, customization, um, people, students being able to move at their own pace, students having a bigger voice in, in, in their learning opportunities, student learning modalities, learning on you know, in a workplace, um, as in a volunteer experience, and that those are as rigorous as other things. And, and maybe even also a, a recalibration of how we ask students to demonstrate what they know and are able to do, uh, rather than necessarily through some kind of standardized test. So I want to finish on this thought because it, it reflects so many social changes we're all experiencing, both pre-COVID now in the midst, which is the ability to make choices to pursue our own individual passions, the thing that are interesting to us. Uh, but there's also presumably some trade-off here in terms of the collective benefits of being all together um, and participating in some activity, whether it's at the classroom level or at the school level. Do you think there's a way to balance that ability to pursue one's individual scholarly passions with uh, participation in those sort of classic collective activities at the school level, the band? Um, it, you know, the, the drama program, the athletic program, how, how do you envision those two things happening simultaneously? Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, we're social creatures. You know, I, I don't I don't I think there are very few people that are working and functioning better now keeping distance than they are um, when they're together with others. I know, you know, my entire team at the department, we're all working virtually. And while we can have Zoom sessions and that can be helpful, we, you know, they're, they're, you crave being able to sit in the same room with someone and, and th throw around ideas and and, you know, tell jokes or share stories or or reflect. Um, and uh, as all that is really Really, really important. So, so I think you're right that that if there are things to be learned from uh, uh, around different educational approaches, we'll we'll use those. But but I think you will still see a very high level of uh, reliance on uh, bringing students together, uh, especially if it's like working in teams and project-based learning that that leverages the strengths of, of individual members of a, of a, of a collaborative. And, and then also, how do, we, how do we gauge the demonstration of learning by individual students in the context of, of, of teamwork? Uh, one of the things in our strategic plan was this recognition of a cluster of knowledge and skills that we called leadership reasoning skills. You know, one of which is the classic, you know, these are the, sort of the 21st century skills that we hear businesses talk about. It's like, how do, you, how do you work in teams? Because it's so fundamental to so many parts of our economy me and to and to what successful you know lives require um, and 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 that's about you know being social uh, and interacting and you know understanding your own strengths and weaknesses and the strengths and weaknesses of others I think that's going to continue to be fundamental and you'll still see it uh, as an integral part of the education experience let's end on that hopeful and inspirational note Paulo thank you so much for spending time with me today and really great to hear from you you stay healthy today Policy Brief is produced by the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University.